Welcome to another episode of The Cubic Report. We're glad that you joined us today. Today our guest is Twyla Reynolds. She is a native Hoosier here from Indiana, raised in a rural area of southeastern Indiana. Her education began in a one-room schoolhouse. It is likely that she is one of the last of her generation to make this claim. Her family consisted of her parents, an older brother, and a younger sister. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Vic. So glad to have you here. And I never thought I'd do a podcast with you. I've known you for a long time. It's been well over 20 years. Right. Well, actually, probably close to since I came to this area the first time around 28 years ago or so. <laughs> I said over 20 years, yes. And I know who you were. I know that you were a professional woman who had spent many years in various areas of the commercial insurance industry. She was a senior claim adjuster, and she handled high-end medical, litigated, and special investigation claims. So she was quite a professional, and as I knew her, she was always traveling somewhere. She was always traveling around the United States. Yes, that my job took me to various locations, different offices that we had, and to uh, sometimes legal proceedings. Well, with Twyla, I've always enjoyed being able to talk to her about any number of subjects. She's not a person who's few with words. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew that it would be no problem to do a podcast. Uh, we talk about different things from time to time. And then she came up to me one time and said, she says, I'd like you to read a book that uh, I've read that you may find very interesting. And I have a lot of people who bring me things to read, and a lot of, I can't read, read them all. And uh, she says, in fact, I've ordered the book for you. <laughs> You'll be getting it from Amazon. So it wasn't just like handing a book for me to read, but she had assigned it to me. And it was entitled Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. And I thought, hmm, what is this? And she had already given me a little bit of inkling about why she wanted me to read it, because it was talking about the various stages that people go through mostly in their latter years as they approach the inevitable for all of us that, that someday the lights will go out in our lives and, and we will no longer be alive. And different people take it in different ways. But in talking to Twyla here, she said that she has parents who are very elderly, and she'll explain this, and the process that they're going through. And she wanted me to read this book because it's written by, in fact, I think I'll have her tell the story because she's read the book once or twice now, and uh, I just finished reading it uh, this morning, and I found it to be very, very insightful in the subjects because as being a pastor for many years, I have witnessed the death of people. I have been there when their last breath was uh, expelled, and I have had to counsel and talk to people about the inevitable, which takes on different forms. But uh, Twyla, why don't you start talking about why you had me read this book and, and, what, and what the impression it made, because obviously it was a very, very strong impression. Well, I first read it a couple years ago, and uh, I'm not sure what actually triggered my interest in this particular book. I just stumbled on it, but I did hear several interviews with Andy Chapman, who is a, a registered nurse who works in hospice, mm -hmm. and I know you have interviewed her. And um, I, I just found her comments to be very interesting. And my situation is that my own parents are both in a nursing home. And at the beginning of this book, the Dr. Gawande actually does talk about nursing homes and the, 
the negative parts of it, and it talks about some of the cultural aspects of other countries that some places nursing homes are unheard of because they have multiple generations in the same household, and there's Mm -hmm. always someone there to take care of the elders. The elders are highly respected, where in this country they tend to be brushed aside. And I've always disliked the fact that my parents were in a nursing home, and they've actually been there uh, coming on seven years now. Mm -hmm. And um, what triggered them to go there is my dad was my mother's caregiver. She is 92 now. Dad just turned 96. And he had a massive brain injury. Um, He was down by the creek cutting down trees with an axe when he was 89 years old. He fell over the ledge and and suffered a a brain injury, a subdural hematoma, Mm -hmm. which um, was very nearly fatal. And we knew after that he would never be able to be mom's caretaker again. So that shifted things quite a bit for my parents. And uh, he did recover, and uh, but he never was able to uh, walk and be as active. He's wheelchair-bound, mm-hmm. as is my mother. She's been wheelchair-bound for a number of years. But this book really talked about the fact, about the different facts about nursing homes and about assisted living. And my Unfortunately, my parents, neither one are eligible for assisted living. They both require skilled nursing care, and I was not physically able to take them into my home um, to take care of them. But if I could have, I certainly would have done that. Mm -hmm. Having both of them at the same time would have been overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Physically, I just could not have done it. Um, You know, one thing, Twyla, is that a lot of people don't even know these things exist until you're face to having to use them because they don't want to think about them. Yes, and that's one thing the doctor talks about is, um, and there are some facilities, obviously, that are much better than others. And my parents chose the facility where they are mm-hmm. now. I I wish they were closer to me. They're actually 70 miles from where I live. So uh-huh. I don't have that daily access. I can't just run over there every day to check on them, um, which I would have preferred, but that's just not the way it is. They're very, they're Decatur County natives, and that's where they want to stay. And uh-huh. I think they want to stay there till they breathe their last. But uh, <clears throat> we have other extended family there. But for my parents, because of their um, extreme elderly status, most of their siblings are gone. Mm-hmm. Um, most of their friends are gone. I encourage family members to go in and visit them. And my parents both have dementia. Yeah, that, that adds a layer of, of care. It, it is. And my dad, after his brain injury, surprisingly, he, he didn't really lose any memory. And I was warned when he was in the neuro ICU that they said, when he wakes up, if he wakes up, he probably won't know who you are. And, and I was with him pretty much all day, every day for that first two weeks until he fully regained consciousness. And the nurse asked him who I was, and he... His speech was impacted, but he definitely knew who I was. Mm-hmm. So I, I was glad of that, but he eventually regained his sense of humor because mm-hmm. uh, he always had quite a sense of humor. And uh, I, when he was still able to, I would sometimes pack him up in the car and we'd go for drives. And uh, my dad asked to go to the cemetery to see the headstone that he and Mom had already had placed at their gravesite. And I, I asked him, I said, 
why, why do you want to go out there? And he said, well, one more time, he'd like to look down at the gravestone instead of looking up at it. <laughs> and it, it took me a moment, and I realized, yeah, he's still a funny guy. Uh-huh. But uh, they've been day by day in this nursing home. Um, assisted are, living with are, are they in the same nursing home? They are in the same nursing home, and they are now in the same room. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a while, they were not allowed to be in the same room because my mom kept wanting my dad to get up and do things for her, mm-hmm. which caused a couple of falls, and they had to separate them. Mm-hmm. And um, kind of a shame. My parents had been married for 73 years, and they had to have a chaperone whenever they were together, which seemed rather amusing. My dad... Um, is now in hospice care, and he has been, uh, he was enrolled last June um, after he had a a seizure or something that had happened, and he deteriorated after that. Neither one of my parents were eligible for assisted living, Mm -hmm. which I would have preferred because they have more freedom, they have more space. Um, My mom was able to have her electric piano. She was in assisted living briefly, but she they realized she didn't really qualify for it. Mm-hmm. She had her own little refrigerator, and it's just like her own little apartment. But th- that didn't last long, and they both ended up in the skilled nursing care section of the nursing home. Mm-hmm. But I I got interested in the book because it did talk about assisted living and nursing mm-hmm. homes and the role that they pay, play here in the United States because we use nursing homes far more than any other country does. And I, I think that's a shame. But it's, it's where we live. People here are so mobile. The families are very scattered, and that's the case with my family. Um, we just didn't have the ability to take care of my parents. Well, I noted that in my own life, I'm, I'm 76 years old, but I remember when I was little, I was in a community of immigrants. People lived together, and I, I went to a tutor. It was like several families living in one big house. They had the grandma in one room. And then, interestingly enough, the Minneapolis uh, St. Paul community took in a lot of Vietnamese refugees after the, Viet- the Vietnam War was over with. And they took over a lot of really big homes on this one street called Summit Avenue, where several families lived together. And they lived together quite well. It was organized I- in that way. But then the rise of nursing homes took place. And I can say that from the standpoint of me being a minister who lived in that area and cared for people, we had a lot of people in nursing homes. And my parents are in a facility that's all one level. And mm. during COVID, I was not allowed to visit them in person. And I would stand outside the window, window and call my mom on the phone and talk to her. And I'd be standing outside um, with my dad. He was in a separate room. I'd have to put notes up on the glass for him. Um, he does not hear well, so he does not mm-hmm. ever speak on the phone. But that that was very detrimental to my parents. They had no outside visitors. Uh, they had very little contact, even with the staff, just bare minimal uh, mm-hmm. contact. And uh, another lady that I kind of take care of, she was in a nursing home near me. And during COVID, much of the staff just quit. And they had to bring in the National Guard mm-hmm. to care for these patients. And it was it was a horrible situation even with my parents with their dementia that they have sometimes people will say well I'd visit them but they probably won't know who I am I said visit them anyway mm-hmm. they introduce yourself they like visitors and mm-hmm. they um, 
don't don't wait for them to recognize you because they're never going to probably recognize most people again. Uh, they know who I am. Um, a couple times they had to kind of wait a second or two, but they did recognize me. I'm they're obviously their most frequent visitor, and uh, but it the day that they don't know who I am anymore will be very difficult mm-hmm. because uh, I I just they're and they're getting to that mm-hmm. point I think and. A fairly short time. Well, that's what I've heard for people that have a relative who has Alzheimer's, dementia, that they feel like they're losing them before they die. And it's a terrible feeling that is hard to express to somebody else. It is. I mean, these are not the same people I grew up with, and, and they're they're just fading. It's I, I feel like they're sitting in this room waiting to die. And they they both are have known... What, it's, what death is like. They know what's in the future after death. They know that very well, and they know that scripturally, what, what that entails. And But their body just keeps chugging along, but their brains have, have deteriorated to a, an enormous degree. Mm-hmm. And um, I just, it's sad. It's sad to see it, and I, I do what I can to take care of them, and I write letters my parents. Mm-hmm. I, I write letters sometimes a couple times a week and I put pictures in it to jog their memory and I can send a letter. They can both read it. Dad can't hear well, but he can read a letter. You know, Twyla, that's a fantastic suggestion of how to communicate with someone who has lack of ability to be able to communicate verbally, to be able to communicate just in that way. And my mom, she, she never throws anything away. She has stacks of these letters, and she rereads them. Uh-huh. Um, and I send them in pastel envelopes so they don't look like a bill. <laughs> and uh, so I, I don't know how many she has there, but they're, uh-huh. they've accumulated over the last seven years. Well, you know, Twyla, there's a number of things culturally that have distanced ourselves from people, and one of them is the letter writing thing, because so many people right now just write a note on email that oftentimes is just lost. You know, you don't keep your emails. And I know that right now I'm kind of going through some of my mother's files, you know, some things that I haven't gone through in 40 years. I'm just kind of going through them right now. And I'm finding letters that I wrote to her in college. Wow. (laughs) You know, that I wrote to her and that uh, uh, was just kind of refreshing to see. I was in England in college. That's the only way I could really communicate with her. There was no such thing as cheap telephone. It was $3 a minute back 50 years ago. (laughs) And And you couldn't really, you know, say anything much in a short period of time. But I know that these are records that are kept that are no longer available to a lot of people who just is here and is gone. Yes, and I know, especially with uh, some of the more elderly people, they like letters. Mm-hmm. They don't, they're more accustomed to that than electronic communication. And and I've that's one thing in retirement I've done. I've written lots of letters, not just mm-hmm. to my parents, but other relatives and other people that I've, I write to people I've never met mm-hmm. and uh, just kept up that communication, especially for people who are shut in. I think that getting that letter in the mail, they know somebody's thinking about them. Mm-hmm. Um, even if my news is really not much news at all, it, it's just they, they know I thought about them mm-hmm. and that you know I cared enough to put pen to paper and or as we were talking about earlier is Voice recognition has been a wonderful thing for me. It's something I use every day. <laughs> well, from what, I, what you said, I'm going to be using voice recognition more. <laughs> you sent me quite a 
letter here yesterday, I just asked you to tell me a few things you want to talk about. Here's page after page. You know? <laughs> <laughs> How did Twyla sit down Saturday night and write all this? So it was through voice recognition. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, I did mm. that about 10 minutes. So, yeah, it was... I. But in my career, that's what I use. Yeah. I'm accustomed to doing that, and it has enabled me to be more effective in some of this. I don't know if you'd call it a hobby that I have now, but it is something that I've used a lot. I've been mm -hmm. retired for five years, mm -hmm. and um, it, it's I wanted to do something meaningful with my time, and that's one of the things. Um, I, I just I hope it helps. Well, it's very interesting you say that because I've just gone through retirement myself, almost going on two years now. And uh, I'm finding them doing different things and even different people things. I had a gentleman who wrote to me probably a couple of years ago, about the time I retired, and said, I read one of your articles in the Beyond Today magazine, and I want to write to you directly. You had written about uh, Russia. And he said that, I just hope this letter gets to you. My wife came from Russia years ago. I'm 102 years old, oh my. <laughs> and I, I live here in, in uh, Miami or down there in southern Florida. But then he told me about his life. He just went on and said that I have outlived my wife. I've outlived all my children. He said that uh, I only have grandchildren available. And he just wrote his whole life out, you know, and how they came through immigration years ago. And I wrote to him, and he wrote back. And we have kept that communication going to this day. In fact, he said that I'm going to be moving to Omaha or to the Omaha area because I have some grandchildren there that could watch over me. <laughs> and so he did. And I asked our minister there to just drop by and found out that the minister lived only just a few miles away, like two, three miles away, who stopped by and just had a wonderful talk. He's 103 years old now. But that's important, that communication. And the writing communication that I've had with him has been just refreshing for me, almost emotional, because I just feel like I'm talking to a human being at this stage of life who still is very vibrant, and I think that's important. Yeah, but my letter writing started, there was a, a lady that my mother knew, she was from Alabama, she was in a nursing home, and she was repeatedly, repeatedly writing to my mother and I asked mom, I said, do you ever write her back? And she said, well, I'm going to. And I'm, I knew she probably wouldn't because of her dementia. And I said, do you mind if I write to her? And uh, so I did. And I, that's kind of what started it. And, and she and I corresponded, and, and I'd copy it to my mom. And, and so the letter writing is something that I have done pretty extensively since I have been retired. I enjoy that myself. It's good for me. And I, I think it benefits the people who receive them. Mm -hmm. And when we get back to the, the book, Being Mortal, one thing that he talks about is, as we talked about the multi-generational families and the nursing homes, but it, one of his major points, and he is a physician himself, he's a surgeon, mm -hmm. he really came down pretty hard on the medical community about not being transparent with their patients. Mm -hmm. And I, I've experienced some of that in things I've observed when I've worked in the hospital industry that sometimes patients are just kept, they go from one treatment to the next to the next when they are terminally ill. And there is, most cases, a lot of suffering that goes along with that. Mm -hmm. And we, we even had patients when I was in the CT area that a family brought their elderly father in, he was a veteran at the VA, 
And they said, do whatever you can to keep him alive. We need his checks, his pension checks. Oh. And he had some rather painful treatment there, and he was suffering badly then. He died before the day was over. He spent the last day of his physical life being dragged around to a hospital and put into a machine, which my coworkers and I were pretty upset about that. Mm-hmm. And my mother-in-law years ago, she had her third open-heart surgery, and after the surgery, I asked the doctor, when is she going to be able to come home? He said, oh, she's never going to get to go home. Yeah. The best we can hope for is to get well enough to go to a nursing home. And I said, no one ever told us that. She had mm-hmm. the idea she was going to get well and be 100% again. She died two weeks after surgery. Mm-hmm. And I, so that came to my mind when I was reading in the book about Dr. Gawande and the way some doctors will say, well, we're going to do this round of chemo, we're going to do this round of chemo, even though they might be stage four cancer or have some other terminal illness, and give them only maybe a 5% chance. But the doctors will say, but maybe you're in that 5%. And their quality of life, I think most people that will listen to this podcast know someone who the end of their life was miserable because of all the medical treatment. Mm-hmm. And and Dr. Gawande is pretty critical of his industry because of that. And it's made him think about times that he talked to patients when he wasn't as clear with their situation as he should have been. And he he really was pushing that issue very hard in the last half of that book. And he has a number of examples of patients and he had their permission to talk about them. And they had been oftentimes go through one layer of chemo to the next layer to surgeries and radiation and treatments that diminished their quality of life and maybe didn't even extend it. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a trade-off. And one thing the doctor really wants people to do is have a choice. They want to have a realistic, he wants his patients to have a very realistic idea of what they can expect. What do they want? Do they want to have more quality of life or is length of life more important to them? And can the doctor help them achieve Mm -hmm. these goals? And some patients are very unrealistic about their goals. Um, uh, And he talked about people who, well, they wanted some uh, one woman in particular wanted to get well enough to take her kids to Disney World before she died. Well, Mm -hmm. she died. Ten days later in the hospital, she never even got out of the hospital. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that particular one I saw in a PBS uh, documentary. It was I found it on YouTube, and the YouTube, um, the title of it is Being Mortal, the same as this book. And this doctor, actually, it's the, the short version of the book, but it's a PBS program that lasts about an hour. And is it called I'm, the same thing, Being Mortal? It's the same title. Mm-hmm. If you go on YouTube and, and ask for being mortal, it should mm-hmm. come right up. And it's very interesting. And some of the examples he has in the documentary are the same as in the book, but okay. there are some different ones also. Mm-hmm. But uh, if, you don't have, if you don't have time to sit down and read the book, that one-hour PBS special is, is very good. Well, he talks about Alice there, and I'd like to have more about the story, <laughs> you know, because he, he has them named you know, in, in the book. Yes. And so I'm looking forward to seeing the documentary on TV. Well, and it's interesting to see the faces and some how ill some of these people were, but many of them, their choices were to go into hospice care. And, and 
I've mentioned earlier that my own father is in hospice care now um, because he, uh, it was a decision we needed to make. He was already do not resuscitate, but the hospice care has given him a different level of, of care and he won't be going to the emergency room. He won't be going through diagnostics if he comes up with some new symptoms. Hospice will be managing that, managing his pain um, as he's getting closer to end of life. Um, and in the last 30 days particularly, he's taken a pretty significant downturn. He's been more comfortable because of hospice care. Mm -hmm. And he they have a lot of different services. And uh, I wish people were not as afraid of it when they get these dire diagnosis and prognosis uh, for themselves. And, and something in the Andy Chapman interview, she mm -hmm. talked about that too. And she said, don't be afraid to use the word hospice. <laughs> and when dad first went on hospice, I tipped around, tiptoed around that word because my mother, of course she has dementia too, said she does totally opposed hospice because everybody on hospice dies. Mm -hmm. And I just couldn't quite explain to her that there was a reason for that. And, uh, but hospice has been good because there's this nurse that gives a couple visits a week that, and she reports back to me what she finds. And so when I can't be down there as regularly or as often as I would like to be, she's there. And he has a, there's an aide that comes in and helps with bathing and some other things in addition to what the nursing home does. So he's had more focused care and he's been comfortable. I, I mm -hmm. think he's done very well. He actually rallied for a while. After he first went on hospice, he improved quite a bit, and we thought, well, maybe we should take him back off. But I thought, as long as he's doing well, let's leave mm -hmm. it alone. And um, so he's been on hospice now for uh, about nine months. Mm -hmm. And uh, Well, as you said, that the word hospice is, oh, it's like a death sentence. I know a very good friend of mine just took his mother to a nursing home. It, they were caring for her at their home, but they could no longer do that. And that was a very difficult day. It was a very difficult day for mom and, and for him because the, one of the things that she said is they were going in the car, so you're taking me to the home to die. And, you know, that has to be very, very painful because you want the best care. You can't do all things yourself. And it was in the not far away, I'm not sure how far away, but it was within very short driving distance. But, she's, but it was in her mind, you're taking me there to die. Well, and unfortunately, that's, that's a lot of people's attitude toward hospice care. Mm -hmm. And then there's the myth that hospice care gives medication stuff to speed you on your way to the end of life. And that is not what they're about. Mm -hmm. they, sometimes the medications, though, I, I suppose, that makes a difference, but that is not in, that's not their intent at all. Their intention is to make you more comfortable. And mm -hmm. and I, I know that my father has um, he's he's benefited from it. Mm -hmm. And my my mother does not have a diagnosis from their physician of being within six months of possible end of life. So she is not on hospice care. Mm -hmm. But because that's one of the the prerequisites to be mm -hmm. enrolled in that. And one thing that really came through in the book, uh, Twyla, that kept, a word that kept recurring was a person wanted to have dignity in a sense that they had a certain control, they were treated with 
respect. They had a life. They had a career. They had children. You know, <laughs> they were known in their community. They were president of the Rotary Club, like his father, you know, was, and he was known in the community as a real servant. They wanted to have that respect continued, instead of just being put away and just uh, pushed aside, forgotten. I don't think that any one of us wants to, in some way, be lessened from have that respect, even though we're no longer doing the job that we had before. Yes, and my parents, they would have liked to have stayed in their home. They loved the home they were in, but had they made some different decisions earlier, they might have been able to stay there. Dad might not have had his accident if it, you know, think if the circumstances had been different. Uh, my dad used to say that they were going to stay right there until something happened. Well, something did happen. And then it was too late for them to make other provisions because they talked about maybe someday they would move into town, you know, have a little apartment somewhere there, but, and that would have been safer for them. Now, something that Dr. Gawande talks about, and I, don't, I can't say I thoroughly agree with it, is that people should be able to make their own decisions. He's particularly talking about elderly patients, even if their, their safety and their health might be impacted negatively, but they should have the autonomy to make those own decisions. While I agree in theory, but in a situation like with my parents with the dementia, my parents were getting ready to make some decisions that would have had a devastating impact on our entire family. I think my mother believed that if she was elderly, she didn't need this money in the bank, and they were going to sell the farm. She didn't need that money either. She had already agreed to give it away, mm-hmm. and we couldn't allow that. Mm-hmm. We were talking about their entire life savings that she was going to just hand off. Mm-hmm. And there were people out there contacting her basically with their handout. So yeah, yeah. Uh, so you can't always allow that. And, and I haven't mentioned yet, but I am the trustee for both my parents. My parents designated that in their trust years before any mm-hmm. of this ever came into play. But I have 100% financial and medical responsibility to make decisions for my parents. And that's tough sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I look back on some of the decisions I've made, and if I had to do over again, I would have done, done it differently. What makes it tough? I feel like their, their life is so much in my hands. I know all of our lives are in God's hands, but mm-hmm. I'm making decisions for them, and I'm wanting to make decisions that they would have made had they been able to. But there's medical treatment that I've okayed that if I had to do it over again, I might have had to say, no, we're going to let them go. Mm-hmm. And so now they are extremely elderly. They're both in wheelchairs. They're both, they both have dementia. They just, their lives have been diminished, mm-hmm. and there's not anything I can do about that. Um, I wish there was. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, is there something that I didn't know that I could do? And financially, I, that's all been pretty straightforward. I've tried to keep their money together as much as possible, but, but all these years in the nursing home have depleted their life savings. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's been hard for me to face that mm-hmm. all the time. and um, As you're being the one that had to be the one making the binary decision, yes or no? I, <clears throat> I have to make the decision. And I, <clears throat> I, I talk to my siblings, and I always mm-hmm. want us to be in agreement. And we have pretty much always been in agreement. I think they're very happy to, to let that responsibility go to me, that they don't have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they haven't disagreed, uh, at least on most things, there have been a few things that, that we've had some discussions about. We haven't had any big disputes about mm-hmm. anything. So, Twyla, are you, are you the oldest sibling? 
I am the middle. Uh, I have a, my older brother is two years older than I am, and I have a sister that's four years younger. I had always assumed that my brother would be the trustee. He's the only boy, mm-hmm. and he's the eldest. And I didn't find out until not long before my dad's accident, actually, that I was the trustee. I had no idea. And uh, I would have thought they would have liked to have asked me about that before they <laughs> named me. But as it turns out, I probably was the, the most uh, likely one. Mm-hmm. And um, Well, I was the oldest in our family, and we just kind of expected that way. I, I do have very competent brothers and sisters, but it was just assumed. I think in many cases, in many families, especially in our uh, in our country, it, it's usually a daughter that takes on some of the responsibility of the parents. I mm-hmm. think in other cultures, it probably falls to the elder son. Mm-hmm. But here, it, it, from families I've observed, it's usually a daughter. Mm-hmm. And that would, my my younger sister, she travels for work and stuff, and I'm, I was not retired when I had to assume this responsibility, mm-hmm. but um, I... It's been easier for me now that I have more time to mm-hmm. devote to them. What advice can you give us that we could go away from this podcast and say, here's something to think about. Here's something I might want to do differently. I think people mm-hmm. need to plan for this. And we, we do kind of sidestep the idea of death. Um, it, it gets easier when you start to talk about it. I, my own husband and I, we've, we pre-planned our funerals and paid for those. And we put it off for a long time. But we found out when we actually went to the funeral home and sat down, it wasn't as bad as we thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and my husband and I, we, when we talk about it, we don't talk about the, uh, one or the other dying. We say, if, if the other one runs off. That's the only way we <laughs> can talk about it without having to really talk about dying and so our pastor, I mentioned that to him recently, and he said, so if Sam calls him and says, I ran off, he'll say, I know you're dead. <laughs> Which, when he made that comment, I thought that was amusing. But um, So we have planned that, and I think the idea of hospice care, I, I wish people would consider that sooner. There are so many benefits to that that can really enhance the quality of life, that longer life's not always a better life. Mm-hmm. And as much as I will hate it eventually when it happens, the last few years of my parents' lives have not been, the, certainly have not been their best years. Mm-hmm. My grandparents, they all died in their 70s, and they had pretty good quality of life right up until the end. And no dementia. I mean, it was a whole different world for them. Mm-hmm. And um, for but my. But then a lot of things do deteriorate you begin to forget things and <laughs> and you don't have the strength that you've got a knee or a hip or something that you're struggling with yes i my my own parents though i i wish they had made more plans and i think i think it, it it's good i think it's good for your family to start talking about these things and have a plan because it, it's it's a disservice to your children to leave things undone or to not leave instructions for how you want things handled. And for me, I, my own personal life, I've watched my parents deteriorate, deteriorate with dementia, and I am going to take my current advanced directive and I'm going to make it more detailed because if I ever have dementia, I, medical care to extend my life, I want to have withheld. Mm-hmm. And some people might think that's rather harsh, but I want my children to know about this. I want people around me to know about this so that when the time comes, they don't have to be in a quandary about, 
well, what kind of what would have, what would mom have wanted in this case? I want to make it clear, and I've been trying to do that. One of the chapters in this book that was probably the most moving to me was the one entitled "Hard Conversations," because it had to do after you let go and after you've thought about what you might want to do, but then the hard conversations where it's inevitable and you have to have that conversation. And Dr. Gawande describes it so well. Yes, I, I never really talked about dying to my parents before, they were, their, before their dementia had progressed to the point where it's at. I wish I had. Um, and they had pre-planned their funeral and prepaid them, but they never talked about it. And mm-hmm. they never made plans in their own life for the disability that would inevitably come if they lived a long life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mentioned they talked about moving to town eventually. Well, they should have done that before they became, my mom became wheelchair bound and, and it, it would have been easier to do if they had taken action earlier. And mm-hmm. it, it might have changed their whole situation. Mm-hmm. They might both be in a better situation now. The final chapter of the book is called Courage, which I thought is interesting that <clears throat> courage was at the very end, not in the beginning or in one of the other chapters. It talks about after you go through all these phases of uh, hard decisions, hard conversations, that you have courage, that you're able to face each other, you know where you stand, and the ultimate last breath will come, as he describes about his father's last breath. It was so beautifully done. And I know that everybody's case is different and people take this differently, but I really do recommend this book to be read by somebody who maturely wants to face the inevitable because it will happen. But it's done in a way that is from experience, from a doctor, is done so well. I think when I talk to my children about my eventual demise, um, see, even I, you know, say, I should say, eventually when I die, I should mm. be more straightforward about it. But I think it makes them a little uncomfortable, but it makes me more comfortable knowing that they know verbally what my wishes are, but I am going to put all this in writing too. I, I want them to have that so that they don't second guess. And mm-hmm. it, like I was saying, some of the decisions I've made for my parents, had I had these discussions with them, I, I might have made different choices on their behalf, something that they would have rather done. I, I always will have that question in my mind. Mm-hmm. Did I do what they would have done in the same situation? Or have I just used my own rationale and not complied? Mm-hmm. Their, their advanced directive was, was quite general, and it didn't really spell out some of the situations that I have had to deal with. Well, we're kind of in the same way, too. Our children know some things, but not not enough. In fact, I know we'll have to have those conversations. Yes, because everybody dies. Mm -hmm. And I I think it it just, just to be clear about it, to just know, let people know what you want. Mm -hmm. People, People want to do your wishes. In most cases, there might be some that would be different. Mm -hmm. And I... I don't know. It's, it's still always going to be a difficult subject for most people to talk about because most people enjoy their life and they want to go on enjoying that life. They want to go ahead and enjoy their families, but someday it will come to an end. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we're in 
you and I are both in this older generation, and it's more on our mind. Mm -hmm. um, we're not like teenagers that think we're immortal. And no, it's one thing after another <laughs> that no longer functions, and, and, and uh, you have to face it and live with it and try to find workarounds. So I, I know what you're saying, and I know that those who are listening to this podcast will be thinking about their particular situations and what they may, may want to do. Because I have not been an executor for, well, just more than my family, and we ask our ministers not to be executors for members' estates for conflict of interest reasons. But nonetheless, I have seen everything from where there was no will at all, even for somebody who was in their 70s, who left no will with the family, that they had to scrounge and they had to, I'm not sure if they actually found something, but nonetheless I thought, I cannot believe that they had not prepared more. There was no will, there was no real plan. To those who have everything spelled out, who have, everybody kind of knows what the, what, what's to be done at that point or to the point of where everybody hires their own lawyer. <laughs> you know, I, I have seen a situation where all the children, it was several, that hired their own lawyer, and I thought that's awful when it comes to that point. Yes, I, death sometimes, because of the money involved, mm -hmm. um, it, it gets to be quite, quite adversarial. And in my case, we did have to hire an elder attorney because of the trust to get that invoked and to kind of work our way through the legals, mm -hmm. legal aspects of that. And the, and the attorney was very helpful, mm -hmm. extremely helpful. And um, that worked well for us. But when people, when the siblings all have to get their own attorney, that... That's, that spells of a problem. But it's good to have, you know, you need an attorney to, some, to draw up the papers, and especially in creating a trust and know the state laws and... and the tax laws mm -hmm. that's necessary but to be adversarial it just adds more pain to inevitable death yes i i just want to make things as easy for my family as i can as easy if i if i would die next week i think they have a pretty good idea of what my wishes are and i do have a trust and i have a will and i've had discussions with my children even if it made them uncomfortable i still had those discussions but I do want to fine-tune that um, mm -hmm. because we never know. We never know when it's our last day is going to be. And tomorrow is never going to happen if, if you don't just start taking action. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I know people like, like you have known that were, they were without a will, and then it, it just leaves a lot of difficulty. And, mm -hmm. and I don't think that's people's mm -hmm. intentions. Twyla, this has been a great discussion here on the subject. <laughs> We've covered a number of subjects that probably just touched on the surface of, and, and I have appreciated your experience from your being in the business, the insurance business, and having these things, and being an executor, and also being a fan of Dr. Gwande here. <laughs> and, and putting this book into my hands, actually you did it through Amazon, but I really read this book with great relish about every single chapter in it that talks about life when it stops being totally productive to the years afterwards, the golden years. I, I really appreciated the book. It was, it was something like, like I've talked about my parents so much that, because I'm living that with my own parents. And, and I, I just want to make life easier for the people mm -hmm. around me when my time comes to take that last breath. Mm -hmm. 
Well, thank you very much for being on the podcast. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to us today on The Cubic Report. We welcome you to share this podcast and tell your friends about it. We can be found on a variety of platforms, including Apple and Google Podcasts, Pandora, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audible, and many other platforms. You can easily find us at any browser address box by typing in the words, The Cubic Report, and there we are. Remember, Cubic is spelled K-U-B-I-K. We'd love to hear from you. Write to us at vcubic at gmail.com. That's V-K-U-B-I-K at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. Come back soon for more.